It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a dope pod to step to. <laughs> Family, what is good with you? I know, 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 I know. LG said you was going to do this, and Big L, you going to do that, and Norland, you going to do this. Where you been? I know, I know, I know, I know. Excuse me. I know, man. Uh, it's been a minute. It's been a minute since I have dropped a episode of the Page Turner's podcast, man. Uh, forgive me, sincerely. I've been wrapped up between school, family, uh, starting a business, trying to get the legacy of my family secured. Um, got tons of community organizing, community activism, things happening and taking place. So I've been putting work in, man. I know uh, I kind of left y'all hanging with this book, and I apologize sincerely. I am going to be more consistent. With that being said, you are now tuned into the Page Turners Podcast with your host, Elgin Bailey. Uh, this is the thoughts, musings, etc. from me, Big L, on topics ranging from race, religion, family, sports, sex, and a host of others. We take books and we walk through books page by page, reading and listening and breaking down and offering commentary on particular books. For this particular season, season two of the Page Turners podcast, the book that we had chosen is Evicted by Matthew Desmond. In Evicted, we have Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond, who follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Held as wrenching and revelatory, vivid and unsettling, Evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable scenes of hope, loss, remind us of the centrality of home without which nothing is possible. We are moving, man, from uh, chapter 6, which was Rat Hole, into chapter 7, which is titled The Sick, The Sick. In this particular chapter, we're going to meet Scott and Teddy. Scott and Teddy fell behind on their rent two months after a simple medical procedure cost them $500. Teddy is paralyzed uh, partially on his left side. An injury to Scott set Scott on a spiral downward, led him to drug addiction, uh, along with the death of two of his closest friends from AIDS. He started with Percocet for pain. Next thing you know, he was siphoning fentanyl from his patient's needles at the nursing home. So in this particular chapter, man, we are going to meet Scott and Teddy. Let me read. 
Scott worked for cash here and there, but his main job was taking care of Teddy. He did the cooking, cleaning, and shopping. In the morning, he helped Teddy out of bed and in the shower. Scott felt he had a calling for that sort of thing. It was why he had become a nurse, 38 and bald with a ruddy complexion, dimples, and eyes that matched the blue flames of a gas stove burner. Scott had a gentle, broken spirit. As for Teddy, he was a small man, bone thin, with scabbed over arms displaying shriveled tattoos. He could hardly walk. Scott made him anyway, and Teddy was shuffled slowly around the trailer park, dragging his left leg behind him and looking much older than 52. Pam and Ned had left to go stay in a cheap motel for a few days, but Tobin was still moving forward with Teddy and Scott's eviction. They had fallen behind two months when a next x-ray and a brain scan set Teddy back $507. Teddy's health problems began a year earlier when he woke up in that hospital after tumbling down some stairs around the 6th Street Viaduct. The space between the viaduct was one of his favorite drinking spots. The car zooming ahead and the valley floor below. He had gone there with a bottle and some men from the rescue mission. In the hospital, Teddy was told that he was partially paralyzed on his left side and that the doctors had to fuse his neck back together and that all the pins and screws were there to hold everything in place. Scott put the eviction notice on their cluttered table next to the bills, beer cans, and an old Polaroid camera and a large ashtray. It was the last... It was late morning, and the two men sat drinking cans of Milwaukee's best. Teddy poked the eviction notice. I suppose he wants to get a little more in his pot. His pot is a lot bigger than my pot. Teddy had looked straight ahead when he said it, his back perfectly flat against the chair. Sometimes Scott would walk in and find Teddy sitting on the couch, motionless, arms limp at his side, not watching television or flipping through a magazine, just sitting. The first couple of times this happened, Scott leaned in to make sure Teddy wasn't dead. Maybe, Scott answered. But what did Tobin do wrong? He is purely an asshole. If you like him, that's your business. If I was in the shape I used to be, I'd already had gone up there and punched him in the nose, <laughs> said Teddy. That's effective, Scott said sarcastically. Hmm, I'm a hillbilly. You can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Teddy went on. He could talk when he wanted to, and Scott sat quietly listening. He didn't interrupt the old man when he launched into one of his monologues, drawn out long and syrupy, like his Tennessee accent. Scott stared into the living room. There was nothing on the wood-paneled walls except a large painting left behind by the previous tenants, Jesus, and the two thieves hung on a cross, all reds and purples. A year ago, the men had moved in with little and had acquired little since. Teddy's prized possessions were his fishing rods and tackle. Scott's was a large plastic container filled with photographs certifications and momentums from his old life. 
When Teddy had finished, Scott looked up from his beer and out the window. Across the way, he saw Ned and Pam's trailer, now abandoned, and Dawn's where he sometimes brought his morphine or, if he was in a pinch, Vicodin. Randy Shitpants, who thought his dead father was living in his trailer heating vents, was filthy on his porch, smoking a clove cigarette and mumbling to himself. An airplane roared in low. I, Scott stated, I don't want to live here. He picked up the eviction notice. You know what this is? The kick in the ass to get me out. Fascinating. Let's learn a little bit about Scott family. Scott had grown up on an Iowa dairy farm that later went to pigs. He once got a horse for Christmas. Scott never met his biological father, who during a date had forced himself on his mother. So, just to clear that up. Scott's father raped Scott's mother. Okay, let's let's not force himself. I understand what the, the, the author is trying to do here, but we're going to keep it 100. Scott's father raped Scott's mother. To save the family some embarrassment, Scott's mother, Joan, was made to marry the rapist. Damn it. She was 16. But Scott's father soon made a clean break, never to be heard from again. The next husband was a mean cuss, a hitter. Before they divorced, Joan had one son by him, a daughter, Clarissa. Then Scott's mother found Cam, a cowboy. They had three more children. One of Scott's brothers became a firefighter. Another delivered water for Culligan, Culligan, sorry. And his youngest sister was a nurse. Clarissa was an alcoholic who lived in the worst apartment complex in Scott's hometown. Locusts called it the beehive because tenants buzzed in and out of it. Scott never got on with Cowboy Cam. He was too sensitive a kid to please the grizzled ranch hand. Scott took the ACT, got into Wyona State University, and left home for college at 17. He soon outgrew Wyona, Minnesota, just as he had outgrown the soybean fields and water towers of rural Iowa. Scott had known he was gay from a young age. I needed to find others like me, he remembered thinking, before moving to Milwaukee. He finished at Milwaukee Area Technical College and later, at age 31, received his nursing license. Scott began his career in nursing home. He checked vital signs, dispensed medication, monitored blood glucose levels, gave insulin injections, administered IV infusions, fed people through tubes, and cared for trichotomias and wounds. He learned to make his hands light and quick, how not to puke, how to find a vein. Scott felt needed, and he was. Good for you, Scott. Good for you, brother. He rented nice apartments in up-and-coming neighborhoods, Bayview and Eastside. One year his best, Scott took home $88,000. He sent home, he sent money home to his mom. After five years of hoisting limp women and men out of beds and bathtubs, Scott slipped a disc in his back. A doctor prescribed Percocets for the pain. 
Around that time, two of Scott's best friends died of AIDS. I fell off. I didn't cope well. The Percocet helped with that pain, too. You notice, family, in a lot of these stories that we see, and a lot of those readings that we see, it's usually one or two tragic incidents that usually leads people into these type of situations that we're further going to see about Scott and Teddy here in just a moment. With Scott, he hurt his back. Then he lost two of his best friends. Not just one best friend, but two of his best friends. And then a drug addiction began. Back to the reading. Scott thought his pain would in time run its course like any other illness. But when his doctors announced retirement, Scott found himself panicking. The doctor had become a treasure to Scott like a bartender who pours to the rim. Another might not be so forthcoming with the opioids, but there were other options. Scott began buying pills from the fellow nurses and stealing them from work. His nursing home patients, too, became regular suppliers, selling Vicodin pills at $3 a pop. Then they became regular surprise without knowing it. Several months after Scott started taking Percocet, he discovered fentanyl. Damn. That was when he fell in love. Fentanyl penetrated the central nervous system a hundred times more effectively than morphine. It offered Scott pure, calm happiness. It pulled him toward the sublime. It was the best feeling of pleasure and contentment I have ever felt, he said. In the nursing home, Scott would take a syringe and siphon fentanyl out of digestive patches used for patients with chronic pain. He then swallow or inject the drug and reapply the empty patches as his patients moan softly in bed. In your own heart, you convince yourself that you need it more than they do, Scott remembered. If I do this, I'll be able to take care of 30 of you. Damn. So the people who are patients of his, who are actually in pain, who are actually struggling, in pain, who needed the damn medicine, Scott began to take the medicine fam. So something about addiction, boy. Something about addiction. Back to the reading. Like any other romance, Scott's relationship with fentanyl changed from something thrilling and magical into something deeper and more consuming. Soon he was no longer chasing a high, but running from withdrawal. The sick, he called it. When he went without, he would shake and sweat and get diarrhea and ache all over. When you stop, it feels like you'd rather be dead. By this point, Scott needed opioids just to function. When he felt the sick right behind him, he did things he never thought he was capable of doing. And I just want to touch base and talk about the addiction for just a moment. Because part of what we as, or many people, get this notion that 
people who are addicts just can quit. You know, you can just quit. You don't have to get high. It's a choice, is what many believe. It's something that you are choosing to do. And I believe that. But I believe that's what happens on the first time. Maybe the first couple of times. But after a while, your body begins to change because of drugs that you're taking. So it gets to a point where literally your body cannot function correctly without you taking that particular drug or drinking alcohol or eating certain types of food or smoking cigarettes or caffeine. The sick is what Scott called it. He called that withdrawal feeling, that that need for the drugs, the sick. And that's something to keep in mind, man, when we're thinking about, when we think about addiction, it would help us be more gracious and more compassionate if we begin to think about drugs in a, in a way that really uh, moves away from just people not wanting to quit but move to the direction of understanding that once you become, become an addict, it changes your body chemistry. I would always, and I actually envision it as if your brain is a circuit board and the circuits of course are your nerves and that your body that the circuit board changes when you introduce drugs into your system. That it's not like a virus. Well, I think a virus might be fair. That it's like a virus that it takes over your circuitry, your circuit board, and completely rearranges it to the point where it gets you to do things that you thought you would never do or you were capable of doing. It rewires who you are. Back to the book. One day in August 2007, some of Scott's co-workers found him standing with his eyes closed, rocking back and forth. They sent him home and checked the patches, finding them drained. Scott's supervisor asked him to submit to a drug test, which came back positive for fentanyl. The same string of events repeated itself in November, but Scott was still allowed to keep his job because his supervisor who had a drug history, gave him another chance. Then around Christmas time, that year, patients complained that a male nurse had removed their patches. Scott was put in a cab and sent to a clinic for a third drug test. He shut the taxi's door and stood outside in the cold. Behind the clinic's doors was a waiting room full of other junkies slumped in plastic chairs and gloved nurses with flat expressions giving off pity, neither pity nor disgust. Scott knew that Christmas music would be playing. He turned his back on the clinic and walked away. Scared, Scott joined Narcotics Anonymous and tried to stop using, but it didn't take. My life didn't get any better, he remembered. 
Four months later, Scott wore his best shirt to a disciplinary hearing in front of the Wisconsin Board of Nursing. The board ruled the license of Scott W. Bunker, LPN, to practice as a nurse in the state of Wisconsin is suspended for an indefinite period. That was the moment Scott decided to settle into a spot on the bottom and become a full-blown junkie. I really cared about my nursing license, he remembered. When they took it away, I was like, fuck it. Damn. When they took it away. And you notice that he... he he doesn't fully accept responsibility here. Now, I know this book is about evictions and, and people being uh, the high eviction rate and all that. But you got you to gotta also be able to peep the stories, man. Peep Scott. Peep, Scott's not able to take accountability for where he's at with his addiction. He says they took it away. Nah, Scott, they didn't take it away, brother. Your addiction gave it to them. Jesus. And the book says, After Scott had lost his job in his upscale apartment, he sold most of his possessions and checked himself into the lounge. At the shelter, he met Teddy, who had recently been released from the hospital. He was drawn to Teddy for obvious reasons. Teddy was frail and sick and needed someone to help him climb steps and carry his food tray. Scott was still a nurse at heart and habit, even if he had lost his license. Unlike Scott, however, homelessness was nothing new to Teddy. He had lived in shelters and under bridges since hitchhiking from Daytona, Tennessee, Dayton, Tennessee, three years earlier. Teddy had grown up in a family with little money and 14 kids. His father was an alcoholic who died young after slamming his truck into the back of an 18-wheeler. Now, that's an experiment Teddy liked to say when telling the story. They made an unlikely pair. One a straight southern man who had lived for years on the street. The other younger, gay, and a new arrival at the bottom. But they became friends and they decided to leave the homeless shelter together as roommates. Scott's monthly income from the SSI was $632. Okay. So far we see Teddy is only making $630. Now what's Scott bringing in, fam? Scott was only receiving food stamps. So Teddy was having the money and Scott was able to supply the food stamps and get the money. So they needed a cheap apartment. But they also needed a landlord who wouldn't ask too many questions. <laughs> College Mobile Home Park had a reputation for letting just about anyone in. When the two men visited the park, Officer Susie showed them a small trailer without a stove. It was in a sorry state. But Tovin gave it to them only charged 420 in lot rent. They moved in that week. After leaving the nursing home, getting drugs had been a hassle. Scott would go to Woody's the harbor room, or other gay bars and hope to run into someone. But in the trailer park, Scott met several neighbors with a methadone prescriptions and others who sold drugs. Getting drugs was as easy as asking for a cup of sugar. One morning, Scott woke up and felt the sick coming. 
His fuel suppliers have run dry. Scott asked Dawn for morphine, but she was out too. He downed several of Teddy's beers, but they didn't help. In the evening, Scott sat alone in his bedroom, shaking. He put on his baseball cap and hands in his pocket and began doing laps around the trailer park. From a lawn chair outside her patio, Harold and Susie watched Scott pass by. She asked her cigarette and went inside to tell Billy, her longtime boyfriend. When Scott walked by again, they called him over. Susie and Billy had a small dog, a terrier, a mix, and a clean trailer stocked with newer furniture. Susie was middle-aged with long, dirty blonde hair and dark rings underneath her eyes. Her mannerisms were silky and relaxed. She told people she had the gift of healing. Billy was a wiry man in a cut-off shirt who seemed to blink half as much as the average person. He had a gruff voice and faded prison tattoos. Susie and Billy had been together for years, but still liked to hold hands. Susie asked Scott if he was feeding. Yes, he nodded. She looked at Billy, who retrieved a small leather case. Inside was a package of new needles, alcohol swabs, sterilized water, tiny cotton balls, and black tar heroin. Never shoot it. It was the deal Scott had made with himself when opioids began taking over his life. He had promised he would never inject heroin, not at the scene what AIDS had done to his friends. Billy held the spoon over the stove burner to cook the tar with water. Humming softly, he had soaked up the heroin into a cotton ball and pulled it into a syringe. It was dark, coffee-colored. Scott learned later that this meant it was strong. Scott took the needle behind his right knee. He closed his eyes, waited, and then relief came. Weightlessness. He was a child floating to the back of the surface. The diving board bouncing. Damn. So, ladies and gentlemen, so far... In this particular chapter, chapter 7, the sick, we meet Scott and Teddy. Scott's a homosexual man who is also a drug addict. Teddy is a consistently sickly, ill man. Scott doesn't make any money, doesn't have any actual income coming in, except food stamps. And the homie Teddy, Teddy gets $630 a month. <laughs> $630 a month. And the, the lot rent that they have. It's $420 a month, man. Simple math. $630 minus $420 is $110. $110 a month for two grown men to live. I'm pretty sure that they're not going to make it that way. Reading this book, man, has, has been a an eye-opening experience, but also a very... Um, 
It can be troubling to read these things, these stories. It can be troubling. But this is your boy, Big L, man. Reading Evicted. We just dug, begin digging into chapter 7 called The Sick. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other.